0: Hi, I'm Gretchen Lynch and welcome to Impact the Podcast, where we bring together some of entertainment's most creative minds to explore the themes and philosophies behind content creation. Today's episode is a conversation with Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan, as we explore what it means to be a multi-hyphenate. How have each of their unique paths led them to the global hit show, Westworld? And what have their diverse experiences taught them? What is their key to collaboration and what lies ahead as they continue to innovate themselves and their work. Today's episode was recorded virtually during Impact Australia, in conversation with Tyler Mitchell and me. Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan are not only partners in life, but business partners and the immeasurable force behind HBO's Emmy award-winning show, Westworld. But Jonah and Lisa had far different paths to this point in their career. Lisa began on a totally different course from Harvard Law School to McKinsey Consulting, eventually making the leap into entertainment with a television writing gig. Meanwhile, Jonah grew up watching his older brother Christopher Nolan create films and eventually began collaborating with him for their first hit, Momento. So let's begin with Lisa's story. What gave her the courage to make that career shift and pursue her passion for writing?
1: Basically lacking both confidence and courage um, just took the most risk averse path that I possibly could while ensuring that I had health insurance at all times, just in case. Um, And so I, you know, writing for me, especially at the time, it wasn't, it was like saying you wanted to be like a pop star or go to space. Like it was, it just felt like a pipe dream. Um, and so, my first brush with a human who did it professionally was was Jonah. Uh, and uh,
2: setting a very bad example.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was weird because I was like, "It's an, it's an impossible dream," and yet this guy
2: idiot. who I'm with <laughs> yeah, this idiot. is doing
1: no, it. Idiot. No, I'm a big fan. I was a big fan of Jonah's work. Um, uh, and and we met at the premiere of Memento, and I was like, "Yeah, pretty good." Um,
3: but yes, uh, question: as a con- as a consultant at, at McKinsey, how did you land a ticket to the Memento premiere? Oh well, that they, they were not hard to come by. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. No. <laughs> yes, yeah, the movie. Yeah, that
2: was that was not uh, the most glamorous premiere of our careers. It was probably the was first one. Um, but Lisa and I had a friend, a mutual friend.
1: Yeah, who I worked at McKinsey with and he had known in high school, who brought me as his like friend date. And so Jonah and I met on the red carpet uh, and uh, got to know each other then. Yeah,
2: I'd say way out of my league, but I had a little boost in that moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. um, uh, but it was, yeah, so when it, when it came to my turn, you know, Jonah did the most amazing thing, which was before I went to law school, he got me screenwriter software as a gift. Final draft. Uh, final draft. Before then, changing to screenwriter and no, confusing I never, I, the I, shit I, out of me. I never.
2: Me. used right. final draft. We just spent an hour on that. Um, <laughs> uh,
1: so I, uh, I, and he told me that if I wanted to, you know, pursue the dream, I could, I could at least have the right software for it. Uh, Up until that time, I mostly worked in, you know, poetry and just doing stuff for myself. Um, And so when I went to law school, I just, I wrote my first screenplay then. It was a comedy that has never seen the light of day. Uh, I don't think anyone's read it. Um, uh, It was one where you cut your teeth on it. And uh, after that, as I was studying for the bar, I freaked out because I realized I was going to have to be a lawyer or a consultant, um, and so I hurriedly. I, I thought TV was kind of interesting because there was a kind of path in it where you could get health insurance. These these risk averse steps were uh, were really a hallmark <laughs> of my of my rise here, my glacial
3: rise. The goal is all decisions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the WDA had excellent health insurance and if you were <laughs> in TV you could start as a staff writer and work your way up and there was a kind of hierarchy but I was like well diligence will pay off in this in this pr- profession. Right. Uh, it sounded less cowboyish than the world of features that that Jonah was in and so I wrote a TV spec and was very, very fortunate in that um, that spec somehow uh, got me a job. It, it was one of those very rare stories where I talked to my friend Michael Green, who's a screenwriter, um, and he sent my spec out to work as an assistant for Brian Fuller, who he had worked with before, and, lo and behold, the next thing I know, I'm getting a meeting to work as a writer on staff, and and they they hired me. It was crazy. Um, and so after that, once you get WGA health insurance, you can't ever leave. No one loses it. Yeah. Yeah. So I I just I just kept it's going. The
2: States. Here we are. Yeah.
1: It's,
3: it's all so it's really all about insurance. Um, they yes. I, I, I had WJ insurance for a couple of years, and it, and it is uh, it is very good.
1: Well, it's nice to feel kind of like you have a real job sometimes, right. you know, and especially starting out then. I, I think maybe people are braver now than I than I was then, or something. But I didn't have a huge nest egg or anything. To uh, I didn't have I, financial support.
2: I think people are braver. I just think there's no there are no jobs anymore. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like if you, you know if if the if your opportunities are limited you may as well pursue something you're actually finished
1: Yes, and and it's low overhead to be a writer you essentially need paper and a writing utensil
2: it's a lot cheaper than cinematography
1: yeah so so that it has that going for it too um but yeah i mean there is a path i thought of writing as a craft you know not as a god-given right bestowed upon me from some muse and i think that was helpful uh because it's nice to feel that you have control that with some kind of commitment to the arts, you can improve and hone and find your voice as a writer, as opposed to the sort of more mystical interpretation of the arts, which I think relies on some kind of a priori bend or some, you know, stroke of genius uh, hitting you. Uh, so you know, I don't know, maybe you do need that kind of stuff. But for me, the only thing you can actually control is the work right in front of you. So I prefer to focus on it that way. I do think also that having a, a um, support at a kind of living wage for starting writers and starting assistants is important. You know, I think it's something that we try to keep in mind at our production company. You know, I think that uh, thinking of it as an indentured servant kind of position Is incredibly detrimental to the diversity in the field, you know, because some people can afford to be indentured servants, you know, if they have help with their rent or don't have a lot of college debt. Um, A lot of those people are not minorities. A lot of those people um, are not first generation, you know, Americans like I was. You know, they're not. They're not. They're not of that ilk, and so they get weeded out before they can even begin. Uh, So I think that a degree of inclusivity really begins at the start at a sort of bare minimum workable living wage for the lowest uh, people on the totem pole when they start off in the creative fields. Going back to origin stories, Jonah, let's hop over to
0: you. How would you say your adolescence or growing up influenced your decision to pursue this career um, and hop into this field of entertainment?
2: Yeah, I kind of got stuck with it. I was uh, born... um Many years after my brother. And by the time <laughs> I turned up, Chris was already making films. Some of my earliest memories are, are of Chris um, and, and, uh, and his, his great friends, Adrian Oroko-Pelik, who are both documentary filmmakers and, and excellent ones, uh, making two great stop-motion films in, my, uh, in our house in Evanston, Illinois, when I was two or three. I mean, these are literally some of my earliest memories. Um, so it's a trap that even if I wanted to escape it, uh, I would have had a hard time getting out. We, we, just, we were always talking about movies. I was always watching movies being created. And so even though we didn't know anybody in Hollywood um, <clears throat> and we had no connections to speak of and no connections to the business, my dad was an advertising copyright copywriter and, and, and marketing guy. And my mom was an English as a single language teacher and a flight attendant uh, for a very long time. And we never lived in California. We never um, had any c- connections to television or film business whatsoever. My dad, at one point, the closest he got was he wrote. He met uh, while he was working in the advertising business. He was like a madman. He was, you know, Madison Avenue, 1963, 64. He hated it. Moved to Chicago, got a job at um, the Ogilvies, I think. Um, and occasionally, we get sent to Los Angeles to, uh, to to supervise commercials they were shooting and made friends with the producer on the TV show, The Monkeys, And he was like, this is it, this is my break. He always wanted to write TV. He's like, this is my break. Uh, so he wrote, and I still have somewhere, a spec episode of The Monkees. I don't think I've ever told this story before. He wrote a spec episode of The Monkeys and uh, sent it to his producer and waited to hear back. One of the features of the episode was that it featured um, a, a, an old Edison-style uh, record, which, you know, the, the very beginning of of of, of record playing and, and photographs they were arguing you know sort of trying to figure out what was the best form for it so you had the disc style ones which of course became ubiquitous but you also had a scroll style one more like a, a cylinder cylinder a wax cylinder photograph and so my dad wrote this episode that revolved around a mystery the monk was trying to solve because they got this wax cylinder photograph <clears throat> that appeared mysteriously he had a coded message on it um that's why the phonograph at the end of Westworld first season, first season finale, features one of those in the foreground of a shot with sort of tragic outcome with uh, Dolores and Arnold uh, couldn't resist. It's so sad cool. end of my dad's story was uh, he never heard back from the producer and he just figured, oh, it's you know L.A. bullshit people. He seemed so enthusiastic about helping me and I never heard back. And then he got a letter with the script returned to him several months later. So I shouldn't laugh. It's sad. The producer that he befriended had died. So that was the closest he got to television. Uh, The classic breaks didn't quite go his way. Um, So I, you know, (laughs) growing up in a household of somewhat thwarted creative ambitions, and then my brother, who just just kind of doesn't see it, never seemed like a risky risk-taking person exactly. He's quite English and quite a bit of a palm, as they might say, as our audience might say. Uh, Lovely guy though, Um, but not much of a risk-taker, and. Uh, and somehow from the very beginning, from the age of about six, when he on a rainy day borrowed my mom's, uh, or my my mom encouraged him to borrow my dad's super camera. He just started make, making movies and never stopped. And when people would ask him what he wanted to do, he would say he wanted to be a filmmaker. Which meant of course, that I, did, I wanted nothing to do with making films. <clears throat> and was dead set on a totally different track, um, barreling in the direction of, I don't know what, you know, I went to D, went to school in Washington, D.C., wanted to work for the federal government, and then kind of got three years into that path before realizing that the family curse uh, struck. And I wound up with an English degree with a specialization in screenwriting. I mean, it's kind of pathetic, really. And then Chris and I drove, when he decided I had been bothering him, bugging him to move to Los Angeles, he's like, you gotta go to Los Angeles. I mean, you wanna do this thing and you're in London. And London is a very, was, I think is a very different environment. Operates on a slightly different principle. It's possible to make your first film in the UK, but it, the, the deck is really stacked against you. Um, and I said, you really got to move to LA and him and his now wife, Emma, uh, sort of picked up and moved out in 97. I was still in college and he was casting around. He'd made Fallen, which was his first movie. He was casting around looking for the next project. And he had a couple of projects, which I will, Lums the word just in case he ever returns to them. But they were a very different tone, I think, than the movies that he wound up doing. And I pitched him on the road trip. I was living in D.C., but he needed a car for L.A. because it's L.A. So we drove out together from D.C. I picked him up in Chicago and then we drove west. And in Minnesota, I pitched him the story for Memento, which was this idea that I couldn't quite get out of my head. It sort of, but it also appeared it, 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 I knew right from the beginning that it had kind of, you know, the inspiration had landed with the wrong brother because it, it made a good short story. It's very cinematic immediately, right? You're describing words, this idea of this guy covered in tattoos and he's remembering everything in images. It, it's a good story, but it's a better film. And, um, and so I pitched it to him on the drive out and he, by the time I graduated college, I went back to school. He'd secured financing for it. I flew out and we, um, we got to work. He was working as the director on the set. I wanted to learn the ropes. I showed up and worked as an onset PA kind of started from, from the ground up, and that gave me an enduring love of of production, which led me back after 10 years of writing movies, led me back to to television, or led me to television. Um, Because in truth, if you've done your job as a screenwriter, there isn't much for you to do on set. You've kind of written yourself out of a job. This was particularly galling on The Dark Knight, when the script was kind of good enough out of the the, uh, gate that I missed an entire summer in Chicago of going to Cubs games and shooting on set because there was nothing to rewrite. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, I was watching Lisa's experience in television and thinking, you know, that looks collaborative and fun. And I missed the set, you know, or, you know, I always go visit set with Chris, but there's nothing for me to do there, you know, between Chris and Emma, they've got it under control. Um, and so I missed the set, just being there and and having a say in how these things. You know, screenwriter, you get very frustrated with sometimes. I had about the best gig in town because I'm related to the guy who's you know who's directing my work, um, and so my opinion could be heard. But even even in that, film is is really still. I mean, the screenplay is massively important, but it you know it really is in a sense a director's medium. And they, they really have the final say. Um, and in television, it's not the case. In television, the writer is in charge. Uh, and so that missing the set, missing that, you know, that experience and wanting to take on more um, responsibility for the creative decisions on set, the casting, the, and ultimately the direction, uh, Lebanon me TV. And we've been kind of, uh, we've been doing it ever since.
0: So speaking of transitioning to television, That's a huge change from a feature's career, especially in a time before TV was really very cool. So for somebody like Jonah, who has some of the biggest credits of the last two decades, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Interstellar, just to name a few, what went into that choice? And how did he measure the risk versus the reward?
2: I mean, it's so funny. I mean, we've been doing this for about, I moved to L.A. about 21 years ago. And so the career, my career now has spanned pretty much equal parts 10 years of writing movies exclusively, and now 10 years of, we still working in, in film, and Lisa just directed her first film. Um, but the TV thing, you know, kind of became all consuming. I wish I could tell you that it was a sort of a grand strategy there. Um, certainly, I was aware of the lingering stigma at that time that if you were as a writer, I mean, this is the irony of it if you had a writer, uh, sorry, if you had success as a, as a screenwriter, Right. That was considered you know, that's what all the TV writers were kind of working towards. And yet what I was looking at with TV is well, wait a second, as a successful screenwriter, you have very little say in how your work is adapted, uh, and how in how sorry in how your work is brought to the screen. Um, even the most successful screenwriters really, it's it's almost like you know, writing a recipe for a dish you never get to cook or taste. Um and And so in television, you saw, and I readily saw through Lisa's experience, a much more hands-on and prodigal capacity right out of the gate. I mean, I went down to visit Lisa on the first set she's working on, and she has a level of responsibility, control, and input that you'd only dream of as a screenwriter. So even though at the time I understood that I was making a somewhat unorthodox choice to go all in on a, I I think, you know, I I went in for a general meeting with J.J. Abrams and and we hit it off and talked about movies for three hours and then an hour three of a general meeting, I was like, well, you know, uh, I do have this idea for a TV show that Lisa and I had talked through kind of extensively because it was an idea that was kicking around with me. It was kind of a more old fashioned idea for a show, sort of a blending of serialized and episodic, um, a slightly more old school idea for a TV show. Uh, And I think JJ probably expected that I would write a pilot and piss off and cash checks. But the whole point for me was the fun of, you know, I looked at Lisa's experience with the room and that looked, you know, the the collaborative aspect of it. Um, When you're writing features, a very lonely job, even though I was working with Chris, but he'd be off directing the last thing we worked on and I'd be writing the next thing. So a very solitary job Um, and just a level of creative input and control just like fun. And so I found myself very quickly in New York you know, being asked questions that I had no idea. I remember the first budget call where the head of production at Warner's Television was saying, well, why does it have to be X, Y, and Z? You know, looking around at all the production executives and realizing that I had to answer the question <laughs> and I had to make something up uh, on the spot. But um, that so you, changed dramatically in, in that time.
3: I mean, so flash forward to you, you guys now, you know, co-created and are co-show running this massive, awesome show, um, Westworld, and you know, for people who w- eventually want to become showrunners, and I mean, I think showrunning is the hardest job in the business because you, you do have to know everything. You, it is a train that has left the station, and if you're lucky, you know, the train is still, you know, running on time. But you're also giving, you know, creative input, writing episodes, you direct episodes as well. Like, can you? is there any other way besides doing it to learn, like, the skills needed to showrun and produce? Um or is it something that you know you just you know throw yourselves into or get experience in the room? Like what what advice do you that like, can you give people knowing what you know now about showrunning?
1: I mean, I, I think there are different ways to showrun. You know, there are some showrunners who don't like production, they don't like engaging with it, and so they'll hire a very hands-on producer to handle that aspect of it, you know. Um Jonah and I don't tend to work that way on on the stuff that we write. I think because, you know, when we when we write things, we have a very fleshed out image in our head of what it would look like. You know, I know when I'm working on stuff, I go so far as to draw costumes for it and you know draw sets. And you know, you I, I think in my scripts, I can be faulted for an excess of scene description. Uh, which I'm trying to rid myself of because it's not great on the page. But it, I realized that I was kind of writing it more as a showrunner or a director would even because I'm like, no, no, no. I want the bedspread to be that color <laughs> because because you see the room in your head and the aesthetic that you want it to have. And uh, I didn't want them to, to miss it. Um, and so I think uh, because I started from TV and I started on Pushing Daisies and Brian Fuller has an incredibly... Um, specific sensibility that he would want to articulate. So he also, you know, people say it's bad to direct from the page, not if you're a showrunner,
2: then it's good. I remember reading those scripts and just being kind of horrified because what you learn as a screenwriter is you'd be overstepping, right? almost kind of, you know, kind of laughable to lay in that much dire- you know, direction from the page, but then you realize it's, it's, I've had the opposite experience. I've had to learn how to put it onto the page Because if it isn't on the page, you know, and you're moving quickly, you may not get it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a better read to be able to write like a a feature writer. There's like pithy things and just broad strokes and people fill it in and they're really focusing on character and and to be pithy like that. But TV scene description for me is more like a a soft prep for production, you know? And for me, that was also really important even in in directing and working on the feature because I was embedding... The camera moves and and you know the idea for costumes and everything in the scene description i mean it's still a normal length script it's just pretty dense scene description when you get to those passages as opposed to bullet points which is more the feature style both are good to master i i have i i would say because i started in directing from the page i, I tend to come from that side which is why probably i ended up directing my own feature <laughs> so, but um yeah, I mean, I think there's no, no. look, there, there are parts about production that I want to demystify in a way, right? Because I think it's important to do that. The same way when I went into finance, I was an English major, and I went into finance because there was this idea in the world that there were these domains that had specific, a specific target to them, a specific and prohibitive language um, that felt like there was a level of the universe that operated that, that regular people couldn't access because it required such a high level of expertise and specialization. And then you just go in there and like you tool around with Excel for a little bit and you're like, oh no, a financial model is just logic, you know, and then you just like plug in the numbers and extrapolate a net present value and boom, there's your stock market, you know? It's not that hard. Um and the
2: argument the argument is there to kind of mask how simple it
1: exactly. And and to also kind of you know I think blur what might be flaws in systems like that um and so similarly in production I think it's very important to question that kind of like exclusive language and uh clubmanship Mm -hmm. in any industry um because to be honest I do think it favors the type of people who are already a part of that world which Are normally not women, are normally not minorities. Um, And this isn't like a, a, a theme that I go back to every day for anything, but when I look at the system, one of the big parts that I see is it's not that hard. It's both totally not that hard and it's also impossible, right? Because to learn the general rules of it, to learn the things that everybody makes it, says that makes it feel prohibitive. No, just spend some time on set and don't be afraid to look a fool. And when you look a fool, ask questions and don't make the same mistake again, you know? So that's not that hard if you have a degree of humility. The thing that's hard is once you learn that basic thing that for most people is the barrier to entry, how do you take that and become excellent? And that is something that if that's your goal, you're going to spend every day of the rest of your career trying and failing and grasping for
3: do you think like as the lines blur between you know movies and tv that when it comes to scene description um that's changing or like do you do you feel that way jonah because i just i know myself as a as a reader and you know producer um i like it a lot of times not overboard not michael man heat like 200 page screenplay but you know, like like because you feel the writer's voice a little bit more, you know. And and I know, yeah. Screenwriting classes I've you know taken. I remember one time it said write a description of like arriving at UCLA today, and it's like the sun and the this and the whatever. And they're like wrong, exterior UCLA day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the director will tell you, like we'll shoot what they want to shoot. And I was like, well, that doesn't seem that fun um, to yeah. sort of paint what that day might be like. Um,
2: well, that, yeah, I, th- I think it is changing. I think I will forever be stuck with this slightly awkward sense that I'm committing a faux pas by being descriptive, even in a script that I intend to direct myself. So, <laughs> part of my brain is like, "Well, don't be presumptuous." And the other part that's like, "Wait, wait a shit. You're, you wait a second. I, I know how I'm gonna do this shit." Um, so, I think it is changing. I think a, lar- a large part of the change is that there has been. I mean, clearly, and we're still sort of in the throes of it. It, The pandemic may have ended it. But when I first moved to this town, we were were in a moment in which, you know, these cycles go back and forth and back and forth. I turned up in L.A. in 99. We're still very much in the kind of star system moment where if you could get Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, or Will Smith attached to your script, you were going to make the movie. That was replaced with the director auteur, you know, kind of aughts. Which, which rolled through where there was much more emphasis on, you know, and my brother had, had the, the good fortune and maybe participated in kind of helping that, that system of people being as interested in who directed, wrote and directed the film as who was on the poster. Um, and then clearly for the last few years, we've been in a, in a moment in which, to my great astonishment, there is actually some interest in who wrote the thing you're watching Less so with movies, more so in the showrunner capacity, because and it's always it's always struck me as somewhat logical, right? The movie screen is really big, the images are big, the story is short; it's two hours. Yeah. Television, the the images are small, the story is long, right? It's it, it, it's logical. The director will be in charge in one medium to a degree. Again, without a script, no one's doing shit, right? I mean, the script is essential to everything, but. You know, if you think of movies as a one night stand and a TV series as a marriage, an ongoing relationship, the story is that much more important, the characterizations, the places you can take it. So the writers, you know, the writers are in charge. And these kind of auteur showrunners um, finally had their moment in the sun. And, and and you know, and, and the market kind of reflected that um, that moment will go and be replaced by I don't know what's next. GPT-3 is going to be writing all of our scripts. Uh, GPT four probably GPT four will be the one where the showrunners are pushed aside and it's you know the the, the coders who get
3: their moment. GPT three could get you a good first working draft. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna have to put some touches on it, but uh, the framework's there. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, so no, I think I think you you know you finally see the moment in which in which the writer you know kind of kind of has gotten their due a little bit, probably more than their due uh, at this point. But it's it's it, it has been. Uh, it has been interesting to watch that happen. And what that means is that the whole, whereas before, I mean, really when I started in LA, there was this ironclad distinction between, you know, TV writers and screenwriters and, and the TV writers were all, you know, trying to get that, that dream screenwriting gig only to find out that they were actually having a lot more fun and a lot more influence back on the TV show. Now everyone's just bouncing back and forth. And that's a lot of fun to be able to write and and play in both mediums and there's no, Um, There's none of this snobbery about, you know, who, who does what.
0: Something I was especially curious about is what is Lisa and Jonah's tactic for collaboration, bouncing between TV and the features world and working with so many different collaborators on all fronts?
1: You've both talked
0: about collaboration, Sam, and I'd love to to touch on that a bit more, whether that's in a writer's room or as a showrunner um, or collaborating on features. What would you guys say the key to a successful collaboration is, and then how do you switch your gears between collaborators, like working with each other, and working with your writers or your brother, Jonah? Alcohol.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Great panacea. There, there may be some folks watching for whom that's not an option. Uh, it's um, yeah. If you guys know, let us know. I, I think uh, you know, patience is a is a big part of it. Um, I mean, this is look. If you wanted to write, if you wanted total control over everything, just write novels, right? Just write novels. You bash it out with your you know with your editor, and you know, but largely that that it's just you and it's just your voice. One of the fun things about film and TV is it's inherently collaborative, right? You, you have to kind of be able to, to, and that's the that's the beauty of it. When it works right, you get to collaborate with, you know, on some days on Westworld, four hundred other super talented artists who bring everything, you know, all of their talents to bear on this crazy idea that you've put together. That's an amazing thing to see happen. But you have to be, you you have to find the right. I think I would say. And then I'll stop talking. Uh, the 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 right you have to find the right balance between digging in and being auteurish and selfish, right, and opening up and 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 collaborating, right. So it's it's you can't just you're going to have a great series. You can't just relinquish your point of view to the to the committee, right? That doesn't work. Then you just get that's just pap, right? You just get mush. Um, but if you Know the right moments to dig in carefully, politely, firmly. Huddle on some weird little thing. It's usually the sharp edges, right? That you want to you want to make make sure you're holding on to, and that and that can come from any direction in the room. Anyone can pitch something that that sounds, you know, that doesn't quite fit. always I always used to listen out for the network note where they would say something bumped, right? Now sometimes what they meant is you know that doesn't really make any sense for that character to say this because three pages beforehand they had a totally different point of view. Okay, but for the most part, when people say things bump them, I would start paying close attention. Not to the note, because we had no intention of doing the note, but because if something bumped, it meant it was odd or different or unexpected. You know, a lot of the times, and you give credit, we work with some terrifically, with some, with some very, very smart executives. But a lot of the times that machine tends towards samishness, right? It's like, well, you've seen literally a thousand versions of this same story, and In 940 of those versions, the protagonist did this. Then you're on the lookout for the weird little choices that you have to kind of huddle on and defend, whether they're yours or your partner's or someone else's, and kind of hold on to those things. Because I think in a a marketplace in which you have 700 dramas or whatever the hell we're up to now, it's the weird shit that's going to endear your show to people, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Alcohol. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> back down call. Yes yeah. No, I, I, I honestly think that the biggest thing for um, a collaboration is it, 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 in TV the pace of output is so rigorous, so difficult and challenging. Yeah. that just for mental health alone, having somebody that you trust, sitting there weeping over final draft or screenwriter with you is actually kind of nice. You know, like it's, and having someone who, one of the coolest things a writer can have is time, right? Because you get your own fresh eyes on your own material. You get to write something. Maybe you think it's great. Maybe you think it's shit. You look at it two days later and you feel totally different about it. But you see things from the gaze of an other, right? And I think that's very valuable to have that time for reflection. Um, You don't have that time in TV. You just don't. Uh, You're just, it's a very quick churn. And so what you're relying on is in some ways, somebody that you trust, not just in the way that like network executives and, and other people like, you know, try to note and, and tell you what they're responding to or not, but somebody who's literally making the same thing you are and they're with you looking at it and saying, I think we could do better here. Or taking something that you had that you were pretty happy with and saying, but what is this? You know, there are a thousand scenes that I've written that I was like, okay, well, that's pretty good. It's done. And then Joan has been like, or, you know, he spits out a bullet here or something. And I'm like, well, that, that, it's just a little moment, but it's great. And then there are, there are bigger things where we'll look at it and be like, you know what? I don't feel the emotion of that arc anymore. We got too caught up in this thing or that thing. So you kind of call each other on places in which you are complacent as writers yeah. and crutches that you may have as writers. And that's a really hard thing because nobody likes to think they're being complacent or using a crutch. it's a terrible thing. And you kind of lack, you know, you're so in it that you, you lack the remove to be able to see yourself with like those fresh, literally rested eyes. And so you have to take on board from people that you trust implicitly they're saying this for my benefit they're trying to tease out something better for the good of this thing that we're working on together and you know to be able to appreciate that as a gift and to think you know when i partner with jonah on on writing something i don't really think of myself as a writer and him as a writer i think of it as this is a thing that must be brought to life and you know We both just have to give it our all and try to figure it out and put the best of ourselves in it and hopefully not fuck it
2: up. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's a really good point about the 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 back and forth of it because I think you know there there is something to be said for being pleasant to work with, especially in TV. Right, disposition counts for a lot. These things are difficult, but at the same time, you know, calling people on their complacency or their bullshit. Um can be vitally important. I used to say in my collaborations with Chris and then and then with Lisa, you know, if if a point hasn't been argued over, it's probably not strong enough. Right. Especially if it's a bold choice. Right. You, you live for those moments where one of you pitches something and the other one goes, ooh, fuck. Right? Yeah. yeah. All right. You know, and you feel yourself pushing, pushing through cliche and and sort of that kind of, you know, the shit that GPT-3 is going to wrap its head, you know, probably has already assimilated, right? It's like, oh, and this is where the, you know, the heroes, journey, all that shit. It's, you want some of it, and then you want some choices that are genuinely different. And with two of you bashing through it, if it's the right people and they have the right level of respect for each other and they can, you know, and they're open to it. Um, but they're also careful to preserve, you know, you know, the, the, those weird little choices that, that only, you know, that, that one kind of only happen when one person goes away with something and just sort of goes you know, and thinks for 72 hours and comes back with this one tiny pearl of something a little bit different and to, listen, to look for those and, and sense them and respect them. Um, which makes it as a showrunner, one of the most important things you're doing as a showrunner is, is rewriting the other writers who are working for you. And I actually find that personally to be one of the hardest parts of the job. Because if you respect them and you respect the work they've put into it, when you find something on the page that shines, you you desperately want to protect that. And then sometimes, you know, it, you know that, that can be very difficult. I actually find rewriting other people's work, which is an essential part of the job, is, is very, very challenging.
1: Well, and it happens in your own work, right? Like you'll have a scene that you absolutely love, you know? And then when you're looking at the broader script, you'll be like, fuck, this scene which is one of the ones i'm most proudest of in this. It doesn't fit, it doesn't service the story in the way that it needs to. It's fallen by the wayside. It happens on the page, it happens in the cutting room, it happens when you're in production and you're running out of money and you have to suddenly cut something, you know. And you know, if when you're in charge of it for yourself, you realize it's not that you hated that scene, it's that choices had to be made, that there's a hole that you're looking at. But it's really hard because there's there's this it all happens both slowly and quickly, right? A script starts to evolve, one change leads to another. And you don't wanna make a writer feel bad if they're like, wait, I thought I wrote this great thing. Cause sometimes the answer is you did. And God damn it, I can't believe we had to lose it. You know, so I, I'm pretty proud on Westworld that the person whose scenes have been cut and never shot the most. It's definitely mine, <laughs> so I can legitimately say to any writer, I have still got you beat in cutting more of my scenes than wow. yours. I would say
2: we're at some point of parody, because for the pilot, we wrote all this lovely stuff for Tanya's the character. I directed it, I was really <laughs> proud of it. And then similar process, oh, yeah. we realized looking at the pilot, but the thing, the thing that was making the pilot sort of a nine course meal was, there's a whole dream sequence in which Tandy wakes up on the cutting, you know, on this, on the surgery table and kind of, you know, staggers off and sees where she really is. And that was when you're directing things, there are things on the page, you're like, all right, I'll figure that out. There's some coverage here. And that was the thing I spent the most time thinking about, most time working on. And you looked at it in the cut. It's analogous. It's directing, but it's it's a similar creative impulse. It was simultaneously the work that I was proudest of. It was also inessential to the pilot mm. and so the hardest creative decision was to take that entire sequence with tandy whom we love and whose character is you know one of the most important characters in the series but we had not you know that's the beauty of episodic television is we then understood oh no we just built the entire second episode around that sequence which richard lewis you know our longtime collaborator then came in and directed that episode and and, and directed everything else except for that sequence. Every time I see that sequence in that episode, I kind of grit, I, go, I kind of clench a little bit um, because of the work that, that we put into it. But that's part of show running is knowing, you know, is knowing when to let go of some of these things. And there are, to your point, often the things, and I've always thought there was something of a connection here, right? It may be the case that you love them as much as you do because they are indulgences, because they're, they are inessential. Obviously, in Westworld, introducing canon character—not in essential, but just not—the pilot had begun with, you know, with James Marsden. You, know, you had, you know, James Marsden and Rachel Wood, and sort of you were, you know, you had a, you know, you just look at it and start to figure out, oh, these, this is how these things sort of break apart. Um, but my first gig, one of my first gigs was was coming on. So i would written the prestige. We were supposed to shoot it. Warner's then got nervous about. We were supposed to shoot it with with with, uh, with Jude Law in 2003, and then the studio got nervous that Chris was going to make Batman Begins directly after that, and they they got really antsy and they said, "Would you mind putting that movie aside for a couple of years and just going into an early prep on Batman Begins?" And a few weeks after that, Chris called me and asked if I wanted to work on on that movie. And one of my first jobs as a screenwriter was to read the script that was too long and, and, and too expensive, and figure out where to cut with Chris, because he was trying to build the Batmobile with Nathan and all this other shit. I was just looking at the script, and it, and it quickly became clear to me there was this amazing sequence that involved Bruce, you know, the city being, the scarecrow ransoming the city, and Bruce Wayne turning up with a billion dollars in bearer bonds, and then, you know, and then Raj Al guys burning the money. And it was my favorite sequence in the script. And it quickly became clear that that was the problem. That was the sequence that had to go. Uh, And I remember saying to Chris, what if they just turned up at his birthday party, right? Boom, 15 pages out. But it really pissed me off because it was a terrific moment. It then comes back in the dark night with the Joker burning a pile of money. It was like you didn't quite get to it. It It was your favorite thing in the script. But it wasn't essential to that story you hold on to it and you're going to build an entire second episode out of that moment with frankly more essential character a character for whom that moment is that much more important um so that's the nice thing about showrunning that's on tv is you have all these great ideas when you sing killing your darlings you know in a movie script maybe it never comes back in a tv series i guarantee you there's another episode coming up where you're going to be very grateful you know you're very happy that you have that idea
0: Lisa recently stepped into a new role as the director of her debut feature film Reminiscence. Her experiences showrunning and collaborating on TV informed her experiences as a film director and vice versa it,
1: it was a it was a thrilling experience it was a lot of fun. I was lucky enough to have the best collaborators, not just uh, truly my dream cast for 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 every role I starting with Hugh, who has been, was in it with me from day one, I literally flew myself to New York with no studio backing me, no, no, nobody saying I had a movie, just a dream of directing the script. And I was like, I would like Hugh to be the lead. And I somehow fooled him into meeting me. And I sat in his kitchen and I just, just talked to him for a bit. And I was like, I'd like to direct this movie with you as lead. I mean, in retrospect, it sounds completely bonkers, honestly um but uh he, it, we must have had symmetrical bonkersness because he agreed to go on this crazy ride with me and from then on you know it, it was always the film is not from an existing property it's an original and it's a sort of say new noir it's you know i i've always believed that there shouldn't be this kind of dichotomy between films that make you think and feel that have a sort of philosophical even aesthetically like um, more art house bend and films that make you fucking cheer and eat popcorn that kind of commercial flash art, you know, polarity, I think is an artificial distinction. Um, and so I wanted to make something that satisfied all the different things I look for when, when consuming, um, a film and, but I knew that there wasn't a lot like it out there. Um, And so it was always this like little, little engine that could, you know, we just took it to Berlin and we talked about it in a film festival. And in the end there was a, you know, multiple, multiple bidders on it. So we got to find a home in Warner brothers and, and we made the film in in New Orleans and, you know, it was, it was great because having written the script and revised the script and, you know, every time I revised it, you know, director's prep is incredibly, incredibly important for director. Um, but I've been prepping for years because every time you revise the script, you have to like imagine the entire scene again. Imagine what the character would be wearing, where he would be, what the tone would be, what the world would look like. And and the more you kind of press on. And then and then once I attached myself, I attached myself as the director. director, <laughs> it's weird. But I, the producer, attached myself with the director. strange.
2: Like Good choice. Yeah, it's like
1: self-nepotism. <laughs> um uh but um I uh I I just by that time I was so familiar with the world. And and then when I when I wanted to direct it, I thought, well, all the chances that I didn't dare to take when I want when I was just hoping maybe some other, other person will want it. I didn't want to make it as specific, but I had all those specific thoughts in my head. So I just absolutely went for it in that way. And, and, you know, you never know, you truly never know um, how something will be received. And I actually literally never know because I don't read the reviews or talk to anyone and I'm basically a hermit, so it's great. Um, but the one, uh, you know, abiding kind of um, mark I have for, for myself on it is just like, did you set up to tell the story that you wanted to tell and can your collaborators be proud of their work? Do they feel proud of their work? You know, and if I can like say that, then I can kind of ignore the rest of it. You know, and so so that was the good part about filming that because I had the best collaborators and clearly knew the script inside and out. Um, uh, and and it, it's been remarkable seeing it evolve um, and getting to work with this team of friends and allies and inspirations as we all kind of just mind melt, you know? Um, I, I think it's really there and exists in the state it does because people really went above and beyond uh, for, for this film and, and for me out of, out of friendship. We had a very special kind of culture there.
3: And did it feel good or different to have so much time, you know, for a two hour movie versus, you know, days on a one hour big show?
1: Well, um, I would definitely not consider the shoot leisurely. (laughs) I'm one of the producers on it who's done like a ton of movies. has been like in my entire career. This is the most grueling (laughs) schedule. The most insane movie shoot I've ever seen. You're insane. Because I broke all the rules. and, And these are the things they tell you not to mess with as a director. Right? Children. Check. Animals. Check. Water. Check. Fire, check. Crazy new technologies that you invent, check. A weird technology, by the way, that involves shooting each scene twice, using a lot of string to measure hypotenuses
3: for camera. Mean, mean,
1: a lot of hypotenuse calculation, like a lot of deep geometry went into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it feels you, I, I don't think you can tell on the, uh, on the screen how much goddamn math had to go into this thing, which is the point, but there was far more math than I thought I was going to have to do. I mean, literally, I would sit there calculating, okay, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, therefore, um, uh, which is, which is totally bonkers. So it was not leisurely. Um, uh, it was, it was quite a wild ride. Uh, you know, I think when you're doing something that's kind of off the beaten path, Warner Brothers, you know, was very very supportive of it, but of course, I'm not going to get like, you know, batman kind of budget. But I wanted it to have an epic scale with huge fight scenes. And, and, you know, so I had to be really creative. And one of the things that we learned in Westworld was how do you get outsized scope on a relatively small, smaller production? Like, how can you look like a feature and feel like a feature when you'd have nowhere near the money a feature has? Um, and, and that skill was part of what my philosophy for making this film was, was I know, I know how to stretch a book due to Westworld. Um, and in, in, of course, in a TV series, you can amortize your standing sets, which is huge. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of like sunk costs that you don't really get on, on a feature that you get in TV. So, um, uh, whereas, you know, you have more time for a feature, you don't get that same amortization. Um. But I would say that Westworld, people would be like, is this the hardest thing you've ever done? Directing must be the hardest thing you've ever done. And it was hard for sure. Um, show running um, a show on TV and keeping all those things running is, is totally harder. You yeah. know, I think, because mm-hmm. you, you can be very single-minded in your focus when you're on a feature um, in a way that when you're, when you're show running, you are a business person, a director, a writer of, eight features at once yeah i mean it's it's totally crazy
2: yeah i think people underestimate the producorial responsibilities of show right? so i've written movies for 10 years and then i went in for this general meeting and before i know it i would like in the tv experience that getting your tie caught by shredder right it's kind of like oh i'll do a little i'll dabble oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> so you know five years later going, what the what just happened yeah um but i was surprised from the beginning at how many more phone calls i had to make you was know, like, oh God, wouldn't it be nice to be call- Oh, the phone's ring again. You know, how are we gonna make there's a lot of producing that goes into show running? I think people underestimate that. Even if you divest yourself from even if you hire, you know, a terrific producing director and you set the show. Some people literally set the show deliberately as far away from themselves as possible <laughs> so they can't get sucked into that world. There are still, you know, an immutable oh, yeah. base level, anti-level kind of number of phone calls. Questions, decisions. You're hiring the directors. You're firing the directors. And by the way, we
1: team. we don't do this alone. We have a great team here. Yeah. Our production company. We work with Athena Wickham, Hallie, Norine. We have an incredible team of partners. Yeah. And even with all of their expertise and all their help, it is. It's really hard to. I mean, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't be able to write one word.
2: Ever the, the volume of decision making that as a unit and, and and as Lisa said we we have you know slowly grown into this um production company with an, an amazing group of partners but the volume of decisions that we all make together on a given day when i when a show is moving forward, you know, especially in and around you know hard prep, you get into a place where making easily two to three hundred full-tell creative decisions yeah. a day. <laughs> it's crazy. And it's you know, yeah, emails. I can I can. I'm gonna
1: check my email right now to tell you how many unread emails I have. Right, Are you ready? We're not
2: in production right now. I mean, it is kind of bonkers. I have. Just how many? Yeah, but I, I I have,
1: I have sixty three thousand five hundred fifty four <laughs> unread emails. <laughs>
2: that's yeah. That's probably that's probably you know, three seasons of, of Westworld and a movie or two. And uh, I mean, it is kind of at a certain point. The email just becomes like a Twitter feed where it's kind of like uh, not on fire, not on fire, not on fire. Yeah. Um, and then text becomes the only way to actually get a critical decision. Out of yeah. And then the production meetings just become a nonstop onslaught of the production meeting will end, and then you go to the sidebar, and <laughs> the sidebar lasts for an hour, and then you're literally trying to go to the bathroom, and you got people asking <laughs> questions in the bathroom. Uh, oh, yeah,
1: no, when you leave the office to go to the bathroom, like four oh people will escort you to you the a, bathroom a, a to ask you questions. Yeah.
2: Uh, and it's great. Be careful what you wish for, right? If I was sitting there feeling slightly lonely, you know, a screenwriter <laughs> in a tiny little office of Warner Brothers, you know, be careful what you wish for.
0: Lisa and Jonah's work, while science fiction or just past the edge of what feels humanly tangible, also seems very real or not too distant from what we know, especially when thinking about Westworld and how much our own world has changed in the past few years in regards to big data, AI, personal privacy, and even global politics. We see through this show a conversation about humanity and morality when dealing with these big concepts or even more ground-level interpersonal relationships. So how much of what we're seeing on screen is really a reflection of what we're experiencing in the real world just through this science fiction lens?
2: A lot. Yeah, sort of, sort of, sort of at the same time, constantly trying to kind of push it back a little bit. Because if you're simply, you know, Westworld is science fiction. One of the reasons I like science fiction is that it, it uh, if it's done right, it tends to age well, because it's not really addressing the narrow, range of au kind of you know topics it's not it's topical but it's not specific and and that's the key you don't want to get stuck in you know in the exact moment we're in because two three years from now people on westworld by the time the next season comes out the world has moved on and moved on again um so we think about it constantly and i think it, it represents a map of many of our anxieties and th- thoughts about
1: yeah that is it's it's a weird kind of it's a weird thing i think it's not like we see the world and think okay this is an issue that we're going to tackle right now you know it's more we live in this world and you feel you absorb the currents of the world and you and, and 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 you know the fears that you have just as a human and you naturally i think everybody naturally Tell stories in their heads, right? That's why there are conspiracy theorists. That's why there is fiction. That's why there is, you know, forecasting. Like humans have an innate and inalienable ability to forecast from one thought into future thoughts, and it leads to both brilliance and also craziness, like total craziness and paranoia. You know, and so uh, we're no different, though. You know, we. Uh, I remember our first season. Uh, you know, we we had the stories of Dolores and Maeve, and after it aired, a lot of people were talking about whether it was a reaction to Me Too. And the fact is, it was all shot before Me Too had even happened, you know? Uh, but Me Too was a reaction to what was happening in the world, right? And as a writer and as humans living in the world, you feel, you feel society, you're a part of society. So I wouldn't say it was a reaction to any movement, it is all part of the same movement, right? We're all fumbling to figuring out this world and seeing where it could go. You know, right now we're in a period of what feels like a, a tipping point on so many levels, political, um, environmental, um, economical, uh, technological. There's really very little knowns <laughs> which makes it a ripe time for conjecture which is what sci-fi has always been about and 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 sci-fi and genre is the oldest in my mind of writing style because it it starts its roots are in you know i i used to read greek mythology all the time right and that's kind of genre i mean i guess then it was religion but it's to us now genre right it's uh what is lightning It's a dude called Zeus who's pissed off and he's throwing shit down at the earth to smite it. I mean, that's a superhero, right? Um, And and we've always told ourselves stories to try to make sense of who we are now, where we could be going, and what could possibly go wrong. (laughs) And this is just a continuation of that trend.
0: Even the most successful people have wanted to hang up their hats and walk away things aren't always smooth sailing, but ultimately it's about having the grit, perseverance, and passion for what you do to keep pushing on.
3: In so many ways, um, you both are just on top of the world. You're partners professionally, you're partners in life. Um, you just finished writing and directing your first feature. Jonah, you've got some of the most incredible credits of the last you know, several de- decades. Huge show on the air, big deal at Amazon. Can you like, think like point to a couple of times in your career where you thought, "I'm gonna hang it up, this is too, maybe this is too hard or you know uh, I made a mistake, I should have stayed in consulting, um, that you like, where you had to, like, to pick yourself up and kind of battle through the rejection and tough times and critics or things that, that everybody um, faces?
2: Season one of us for sure. <laughs> uh, without a doubt. No, I I mean, literally we had, you know, like I said, I, I was still in college when Chris was adapting my short story. I came out, you know, I saved up some money in DC, came out, got a cheap shitty used car and a candy bar Nokia cell phone and we were making movies. And there was a blip there in the beginning where we'd shot Memento and, you know, we screened it for everyone. And everyone kind of said, well, I love it. But, you know, the audience won't like it. And you're like, well, why? They're like, because the audience are fucking idiots. And we sell movies to idiots. And we're like, shit. So we sat in it for six months. And then the people who financed it were foolish enough to finance their own distribution company to put it out. And from that point onwards, it was, you know, honestly, it was like, you know, I'm considering talk about my struggle. But the truth is, my struggle has been like, you know, sliding down a greased banister into a fucking pile of money. I mean, my version of Hollywood is, you know, I'm a white guy. Right. And it's only in this moment where you are starting to realize, oh, shit, and, you know, maybe I didn't know anybody in Hollywood, but the meritocratic part of this town was maybe a little more merit, you know, a little more, or uh, a little less meritocratic for me, especially watching my wife's experience. Uh, but for the most part, you know, we've been we've been working hard, having good ideas, but very, very lucky. I remember my brother at one point asked a filmmaker whose name will go unsaid uh, very early on when, when Chris was still painting. Painting houses, not not painting painting houses. And I asked the filmmaker, "What's the most important thing in a career?" And he said, in passing, without stopping, literally, luck. And kept walking. And we thought for years, "What a dickhead, right?" And then as I get older, I start to realize, "Oh shit, actually, there's quite a lot of of humility in that statement, right? L- luck is a factor, right? Um, y- you have to be a little lucky, and it, it, you're a little luckier, you know, if if, uh, if if you're not a person of color, if you're a man." That said, uh, we definitely had some ups and downs. You know, enough of these things. We ran into the first season of Westworld with that confidence—the confidence born out of, you know, 13 years of largely getting your way and making making movies—and they all kind of worked. Um, that and wasn't my experience. So.
1: We, we we're, I'm like, he's talking like an alien to me right now. I'm like. What?
2: Yeah, that, that, was, that was not least an experience at all, but we got into a Westworld. And it was the first thing that we really collaborate on together. So that's high-stakes shit, right? You're going to take not only your career, but your marriage, and now put it on the table um, on one very big project. But I think part of the thing, and when you talk about your experience going out and talking to Hugh, you kind of really realize the huge risk you're taking after you've already taken it, right? It's almost like, a, like the opposite of the adrenaline response. It's almost like you quite understand the, the, the foolishness of <laughs> what you're taking on when you do it. We wrote a cool script. We got a great cast put together. We shot a terrific pilot um, and felt like, cool, you know? The network watched it. HBO had never done science fiction before, not really. The occasional sort of concept piece, but never a full tilt like robots and shit show. So they were predisposed to be nervous about it. And then in the middle of our first season, um, it just came you know their nervousness, their anxiety, um, became a. Uh, this is a different, a different regime at HBO, and this is one of the things you can deal with on a project. It, it's almost it happens so often that it's almost the rule rather than the exception. You will sell a show or a film to someone, and by the time you're in the middle of shooting it, they'll be gone, and you begin. There are grief phone calls, you know, and emails saying, "God, you know, how could they?" <laughs> it's just. There's enough churn at the executive level of our business that you can find yourself working on something and suddenly the phone rings and it's the person who's now in charge saying, hey, uh, so you know, tell me a little bit about the project that you're neck deep in. Um, so our, our experience at Westworld was we believed very much in what we were making. It was excruciatingly difficult to make that first season, both on the page, in production, in post-production, Um, and then we were also dealing with the anxiety to some extent of, of, um, the folks who'd asked us to make it in the first place at the network. Um, and we, when we had to stop, we had to shut down. Part of it was the complexity of putting it all together, writing it, shooting it. But, but really, you know, to be honest, I think there was a bit of an identity crisis there, um, on the part of the network in terms of whether this was a show, whether this was their kind of show, um. And that's a frightening moment as a writer, because unless you're a sociopath or an asshole, no one is immune to that. No matter how much success you've had, uh, or no matter you know, how much you believe in a project, no one's immune to the moment in which you start to think, shit, I don't know. I think it's cool. We think it's good. But you know, if someone is sufficiently rattled about what you're making, um, it, can, it can rattle you a little bit. Um, and, and it's in those moments that you have to kind of go back to the essentials of what you set out to do. It's exactly as you said, you know, did you, are you telling the story you set out to when you weren't under this much pressure? You know, when the shit hits the fan, you kind of go back to what was the creative impulse that led you to embark on this project in the first place? Mm. And we hung in there, and we stuck to our guns. And a new regime came in at HBO. And Casey Boys came in and watched everything we'd shot, and was like, "Looks great." <laughs> went, oh fuck, okay. Uh, and we went back to work. Um, so it definitely, when you're trying to do something uh, bold and difficult, um, you, you cannot count on, you know, every, even the folks who are, you know, who who. You know, asking to do it in the first place, necessarily seeing what you're doing as you're making. I mean, famously, some of the biggest movies in movie history. I remember I first moved to this town, uh, f- first started coming to this town. Chris and I drove out in 97, which, of course, the year the Titanic was released. About six months after we showed up, Titanic came out of the movie theaters. And for about a year before that, or was it was in 98, 97, 98, it was after Chris had moved here. The stories about Titanic were legendary. Yeah. Like, oh, it's going to take down two studios. Right. And why would they let James Cameron do this? Right. I mean, literally the most successful movie of all time until the next James Cameron movie. And and the word on it was so we had to go through a period of that where the press on Westworld was, oh, expensive, you know, expensive, difficult production. When from our perspective, we had an amazing group of collaborators collaborators, we had a cast that never blinked. And We just hunkered down. It was a re- remarkably drama-free production from our perspective. We were doing exactly what we set out to do. We had this wonderful group of collaborators, all this kind of crazy noise around it. And you start thinking, shit, are we on a troubled production? Because we're here. and It seems pretty great. It's all going pretty smoothly. Um, so that was tough. That was tough.
1: Yeah. I mean, I. it's funny because that kind of stuff, I find, of course, difficult. I, I have written things that I've spent years working on that you know, you send it off and you hear the, nothing, you hear nothing. You wait, you think it's going to happen. It's like waiting for a boy to call, you know, oh my God, they're never going to call. When does it hit you, they're never going to call. It's just that resounding silence. I mean, there is, there is a real sadness to that resounding silence. Um, and and of course there's a sadness to again, I don't really read stuff. So I I avoid I avoid the sadness of external entanglements um, in that way. You know, the thing that gets to me, I think it's very different from um, from Jonah's experience of like what hurts. You know what I mean? Because stuff that's like they don't like it, they might shut us down, repress. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really. I never assume anybody would watch it or like it, and I always assume I'm going to be shut down. <laughs> like I'm, an, I'm a pessimist to my core, so I'm like, no surprise there. I, you, why, why should I be in Hollywood with all these brilliant artists working on something that I love? That seems like outrageously insane to ask for. People are starving in the world. Like I never, like I never think like, well, no, this, it's outrageous that I don't get to do that. I'm like, it's outrageous that I'm standing here. You know, like. It's outrageous that we're all standing here. Um, it's totally outrageous, you know. Um, so, so the hard knocks they've heard, of course, they smart, and you and you have a little self doubt, and you know, you got to dust yourself up. That, that doesn't hurt me as much, honestly, um, because I think also having not had early success, having come from it from such a different angle, I'm just, I've gotten, I think, good at. Just standing back up again. You know what I mean? Like us when we can knock you down, you can stand back up again. I didn't have the burden, and it is a burden as well as a gift of people believing in me. (laughs) Like I never walked into a writer's room and people were like, that girl, she's gonna nail it. That never happened. You know, like there was never like the that's you know, it was a different time. I think that time still persists a bit, you know, but the there is something to be said for for working in, in, through a whole phase where no one expects anything of you,
2: <laughs>
1: nothing. Um, and there is, there's a gift to that because you have nothing to lose. You can't look a fool. You can't possibly fail any more than every day by existing you are deemed to be failing. <laughs> and it's such, it's luxurious, right? So I'm like, oh, wow, that's crazy that I'm still alive and standing in this industry. That's crazy. Um, so that stuff, you know, I'm kind of, I'm always just a little bit shocked to still be standing, but also you get good at picking yourself up. The thing that kind of, the thing that did would erode my confidence and cause me to like question and doubt more were, you know, there there is definitely on a, on a, on a smaller level, not on a public perception level or that kind of level, but on a day-to-day level, I think, you know, as, uh, especially, you know, earlier on in my career, uh, it was harder, it was truly harder to get taken seriously, not just by, you know, an industry, but when you're trying to do your job, you're sitting there, and you're writing pages, or you're on set, and you're saying, the lighting doesn't match that lighting, you got to switch the lighting, right? And it's not like an issue of, it's not even subjective. It's just like the lighting doesn't match, guys. You know, um, and the amount of. Don't worry, honey. I've been working here for twenty years. I'm gonna figure it out. You just sit there, right? And I mean, I've been on sets where I, I've been the boss. And I've written a script, and I've, I've said, you know, that's not, you know, I've been trying to talk to somebody, a director, about a script, and they'd be like, can we get a writer? I'm like, I am the writer, and 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 I co written it with a with a guy who I hired, and they were like, well, can we get that guy? And they were just like it was like a it was like a disconnect like they couldn't they couldn't fathom that I was going to tell them about the thing they had to get the guy to get on, and and you know the craziest part about that is again it's not the insult itself right which is fine that's just that's just that's their problem but the problem is when it does become insidiously your problem when it happens enough and consistently enough that you start to think do I talk in a very confusing manner that when, when that guy says it, it makes total sense. But if I were to say it, it seems like, I used to call it the Zephyr. I'm just a Zephyr blowing through the room. The idea of a suggestion of a thought. And then if a guy repeats it, all of a sudden it's a thought. And I was like, and that's kind of maddening because you start to just, you honestly start to wonder like the corrosive effect of having that in surround sound all the time can make you really unclear as to what the hell is going on and if you have any talent or what the hell you're doing there if you even speak english because it seems like no one else is you know paying attention and and i found i struggled with that a lot early on i i i I, and and i think everybody struggles with it i think women struggle with it but i think it's changing as the industry changes and gets more inclusive you get more people who are like you and more inclined to hear your voice and and you get you get you surf these issues. And so people are more aware of implicit biases and explicit biases, you know? But I will say that for a very long time, it wasn't the like, okay, you're not picking up my script or you're not making my movie. I can rationalize that as a thousand things. A, you don't like my writing. It's too complicated. Uh, it's too expensive. Whatever, you're going with a different writer because that's how the cookie crumbles in Hollywood. It was that more like intimate day-to-day you know, what do you mean women can't be funny? Like literally things like that said all the time. Um, And so, so yeah, but when, when you have to deal with that every day and still kind of while having extreme doubts based on that as to whether you even deserve to be there, (laughs) still dust yourself off and act like you deserve to be there and like stare at a page and write, you know, um, I think it gives you, it's very, it's a trying time, um, but it gives you a fortitude in a way that's like, I don't know that allows you to call Hugh Jackman on the phone one day and say can I sit in your living room and pitch you because I have nothing left to lose um so I don't know it's a blessing and a curse on the flip side of hurt do
0: you each have a moment in your career that you'll always cherish or hold as truly special that stands out
2: well there was the premiere of Memento where I met my wife (laughs) that's pretty good it was a highlight yeah hard to beat that Oh, I have one that was good. I have
1: a picture from it that we will never show. But it was, <laughs> I was nine months pregnant. And just so you know, my child was over 10 pounds. So I was humongous and it was all in this belly. Um, and it was impossible. It, uh, it was impossibly. It's, it's like it, an optical illusion. Yeah, it was kind of weird <laughs> that I could stand upright. Um, and I, it was during a time when I... It was hard for me to get a job because I was pregnant. So it's hard to staff because um, you knew you'd be taking leave. And so I had to just sit there and I had morning sickness and I would just write and puke on in a bucket. And it was the first time I ever written anything solely for myself because of my aforementioned um, obsession with having healthcare. Um, and so uh, what I wrote was, was reminiscence um, uh, in my first and second trimester. And then third trimester, I just gave it. To the world to see if anybody would want to buy it. And we went out to dinner and uh, I was sitting there and I got a call from my agent and I walked outside and Jonas took a picture of me reacting because he called and told me they'd been this like bidding war for the script. What was our
2: lawyer? It was Michael. Or it was
1: Michael. It was and, Michael. And
2: I've been in the business long enough to know that your lawyer doesn't call you on a Saturday night at dinner with bad news, right? If no one wants to buy the script, you're going to hear about it. Tuesday afternoon. They right? say Monday morning. Yeah, Monday, it's, Friday, that, it's that it's that silence we talked about. Yeah. <laughs> the silence is sad. They're not calling Saturday evening. Yeah. So I got my phone out and I took a picture of Lisa pacing back and forth with literally, you had a notepad on the top of your of your of your belly <laughs> and your phone yeah. in your hand, kind of taking notes. Yeah. And then it's just this amazing look on your face. Because there there was. There was a period in which because you were pregnant and also because you know, for a million different reasons. You really got to a point in your career where you kind of felt like, like you know, this was- I tell you
1: know, people, you know, I wasn't staff, but I was writing from home and somebody actually told me, it's okay to say you're retired. And like, you know, Jonah's doing well, you know, you can live off Jonah. And I was like, you know- um,
2: I think I thought I understood sexism. And then I started working, you know, <laughs> working with my wife. And realize it's like fucking Serpico, right? You'd be like, wait, oh, your sex is too <laughs> Like, how How much of this is out there? Oh, uh, it's, it's Kind it's, of insane.
1: Sometimes it's, it's been, like I am, culture learns and evolves, you know? Like I, I, my own expectations change over time, you know, as as we evolve in a conversation together, I'm not saying all of it's malicious because it's not, you know, um, you can internalize it in ways that aren't, harmful and that's unfortunate because it shouldn't be that pervasive. But I I have hope, you know? I mean, fuck the assholes who are malicious, fuck them, go to jail. But aside from that, you know, I'm all about the conversation, it's cool.
3: Okay, last question and thank you again for being uh, so generous with your time. Um, If you could have written any movie or TV show throughout history that's not your own, uh, what would it be?
1: Memento, so I could marry that hot chick. <laughs> I'm not going to beat that.
2: I think, we'll let, I, think, I think we'll let the microphone drop.
0: Thank you so much for listening to today's episode with Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan. And don't forget to follow at impact.development on Instagram and at tweetsbyimpact on Twitter to stay up to date. We'd like to thank our Impact speakers for their time, wisdom, and supporting the creative community. We would also like to thank Impact's founders, Brian Grazer, Ron Howard, and Tyler Mitchell for making this all possible. Until next time, I'm Gretchen Lynch, and have a great day.